right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to Pain Week 2018. Um, I'll take the opportunity to introduce myself. For those who don't know me, my name is David Glick. Um, I'm, I guess I've been involved in the field of pain since 1990 or so. Um, I've had a very unusual clinical practice all these years, which was dedicated to the evaluation of co difficult, complicated, and complex cases. So I sort of have sort of seen a lot of different things. As a matter of fact, what I initially had planned for you for this particular session, this is new to me because I've never spoke on a Tuesday before, um, was I wanted to do a session on what I call zebras. The zebras are basically the common manifestations of the uncommon pain pathologies that you'll see in your office, because I thought that would be a really cool thing to have. But how many people of you have seen an example of a Kindbox disease stroll through, or Parsonage Turner? Well, you know, those are things that you might see maybe one in a lifetime, and I thought that we can do something that might be more valuable. And as I kind of dialed back my actual clinical practice, so these days I'm seeing as few patients as I, as I possibly can, maybe the occasional patient or two in doing telemedicine consults, but that allows you the ability of taking a step backwards and looking more closely at the patients that you're seeing. So it turns out that the things that I'm seeing more often are what I think are the more common patients that you see every day and yet, they still fell through the cracks. And that's where I wanted to sort of change the discussion for this morning. So what I have planned for you is we want to take a look at neck and upper extremity pain syndromes. But my whole goal, essentially, is to just change the way that you think and maybe have you approach dealing with these patients in a slightly different manner, because that's the game changer. I have nothing officially to disclose, except for the fact that the slide won't advance. There you go. So our official course objectives for the morning is I want to talk about the fact that there are some primary and secondary pain generators associated with neck and upper extremity pain. But I also want to point out a couple of different things, which is that sometimes we overlook these problems by not paying attention to the patient as a whole and just paying attention to the region. I had a great case example, which I'll, I'll tell you about as we get into the lecture, and you'll see how that, how that pans. And then I want to talk about how some of these overlapping or some of these pathologies can overlap, because it could be something very simple, but then when they overlap, it's never 1 plus 1 equals 2, right? It's just like 1 plus 1 equals 5. But that changes the clinical you know, presentation of the patient, which makes it a little bit more complex to tease out and treat the problem. So I start off with the back pain lecture much the same way I'm starting this one, which is neck pain itself is not a disease, is it? It's a symptom. So if we were talking about knees, most people don't identify themselves as with they have, when they have a knee problem as having knee pain. They say, I have an ACL tear, right? Or I have a meniscus tear. Well, that's because someone had diagnosed their problem and put a more specific condition name on it. But yet, when it comes to things like neck pain, you know, it seems that the initial clinical manifestation is sort of to treat it like a sprain-strain injury. And then when you throw imaging studies at it, we're treating all problems as if they're pinched nerves, right, or disc pathologies. Well, that's a problem. I think one of the things that made me who I am is I like to consider myself the triage diagnosis guy. I don't know how to do, nor can I do, all of the different treatments that we utilize. But I like picking out which patient needs which treatment at which time. Because for as much as this is, sounds like a simple problem, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. How many different ways can you figure out how to treat neck pain? Well, I used to like basically use the idea that there is a patient for every treatment, if you think about it, bless you. The key to understanding or the key to having an outcome is to be able to identify what patient specifically should receive that treatment at that time. 
that's the game changer. The last statement here is the most controversial, I think, of all the things I say at Pain Week, and I, but I say it a lot, which is that chronic pain often occurs as a result to basically adequately differentially diagnose and treat that problem. Because if you miss the diagnosis, are we going to keep on treating that patient? And they're going to go around in circles. And it's just like having your car repaired. I love it when I, I'm a car guy, so I use car examples all the time. But I love it when the car guys use medical examples. So if, you, if they don't take the opportunity to bring your, you know, to examine what's wrong with your car first, and they just start throwing repairs at it, how upset are you going to be when you keep on getting the bill and the problem's not fixed? Well, in healthcare, we don't see that as much because a lot of times we're playing with somebody else's money. I always thought the Affordable Care Act would be the great sort of equalizer because you're going to have patients now paying a little bit more attention to what gets done because they have to pay for more things out of pocket. And we truly have seen that. You know, from my perspective, when we look at all the entire clinical population, we have patients that are trapezoids, if you remember this old little block game for children's game. We have patients who are cylinders. We have patients who are cubes, right? If you put a cube patient with a trapezoid clinician, physician, what happens with respect to treatment? It's probably not going to work, is it? But if you are good enough to put that cube patient with a cube physician, clinician, then you're going to get a better outcome because you've matched the two of them together. The first time I used this, this example, Jim Giordano said, you know, some of our patients are half cubed, half cylinder. It's like, yeah, I got that. Well, that means that this is the perfect opportunity for you have to find someone who's either half cubed and half cylinder for their treatment, or this brings up the idea of a multidisciplinary model where you have a cube and a cylinder working together to treat the problem. Make sense? Because basically not everybody can treat everything. I don't claim to be able to treat everything. My only claim is that I like to be able to say that I can recognize when something's there. So the whole key for me is this diagnostic triage model. The problem that we have, though, is how many minutes do you get to spend with a patient to evaluate their problem? And that's where there's an issue. Because unfortunately, the most important tools we have in our clinical armamentarium is actually what? The history. The patient comes in and tells you a story. This is how it happened. This is what makes it better. This is what makes it worse, right? Then based on the information the patient's telling you, you are then running some things through in the back of your mind saying these are the possible things that can account for that. So then you structure a problem-focused examination to either rule out or rule in what you think is the problem, and then you make this medical decision-making treatment, this medical decision-making process to determine what treatment you think is best. And you're doing that based on the fact that you have an experience because you've seen this before. Make sense? Well, the problem we have, and I'm noticing this even with my full disclosure here, is on the telemedicine side of the equation, we don't get to evaluate hands-on patients like we used to anymore when I do that but yet we're still getting a change in outcomes. That's because I'm spending a lot of time on that history side and looking at some of the treatments that were done and failed because that's just as important as well. So short of being able to take this information and then decide what your starting point is in a highly patient-centered manner, what you end up with is the whole concept of throwing darts at the patient, hoping something is going to stick. How often do we see that in clinical practice? All the time. Can we all agree? You know, because we have protocols, so patient starts with A and then goes for B. Well, I like being able to say, well, patient has C, let's start with that. So in a sense, by doing a more detailed, specific clinical examination, putting more time up front, then it's like having a bullseye on the patient. You can throw the dart at it, you know exactly what you're going to hit, you get a better outcome. So the economics, I had this discussion with somebody coming into the room, the economics of scale are interesting. 
what would a cervical fusion cost these days? At least, what, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 minimally? Some of the back surgeries we've seen have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you save one unnecessary surgery, how many more patients can you pay for to double the amount of time you spend with a, with a patient, which would be extremely important for diagnosing it? Well, it works. And there's some interesting data coming out of all things, the concierge model. Because a lot of people are noticing that on the concierge model for care, those of you who have concierge practices, are noticing you're using less diagnostic workups, your patients are on fewer medications, you're using less services, yet your patient outcomes are better. Well, what's the difference in there other than time? So somebody came out and said, oh, it's socioeconomic because only you know, an upper crust of patients can afford to pay for that. Well, some of the employers are doing direct or primary care models, which is an essentially a, a um, concierge model. And guess what? That's across the socioeconomic scale, and the outcomes are the same. So for me, diagnostic triaging is cool. The problem is, as many of you have told me over the years, and as I recognized myself, which is why I had to drop all my insurance participations for general health care back in 2004, there's a time component. If you look at the CPT code reimbursement for all of the services that you do, who's gotten raised in the past 25 years? And if you did, it was less than you know, inflation. But if you look at all the stuff that I do, reimbursement has just gone down and down and down. So it's fractional compared to what it was when I started in practice. So you have to see more patients just to keep the lights on. Well, when you see more patients come to keep the lights on, now you have to rely on other things. So what's the number one thing everybody seems to rely on when it comes to patient care these days? Imaging studies, right? Let's do an x-ray. Let's do an MRI. We have a great session tomorrow, by the way, in imaging studies. If you haven't staffed to it, so I'd invite you back to hear that, too. Here's the one problem, and we'll go into detail a lot more about it tomorrow. Do you know that nobody ever validated the results of imaging studies to tell you that the pathologies on them were clinically significant? There's never been an evaluation to demonstrate that. And in fact, when you look at the research, and yes, this one's on back pain, and you'll, it's one of my favorite research, research studies to quote, Jensen basically took 98 patients, but we'll round it off to 100 patients who had no back pain whatsoever, so they were asymptomatic. And in doing that, basically 52% of them had a disc bulge or herniation. 39% had disc bulges or herniations at more than one level. And remember, this is a symptomatic an asymptomatic patient population that has disc pathologies 50% of the time. So the corollary to this study was actually done a couple of years ago. It was done in 2013 in China, published in 2016. What they said is we're going to take every patient who presents to two different ERs in China with acute back pain, we're going to keep real close tabs on them in their imaging studies for a month and see what happens. Well, the end in that was 3,107 patients. So when they did that, 58.3% of them had normal MRIs, 41.3% had pathologies on MRIs, but they found there was very little correlation between the pathology and the distribution of the patient's complaints. Well, wait a second. That means, in the very least, you got a 50-50 shot of having a pathology and imaging study whether you have symptoms or not. Well, that's kind of like rolling the dice and deciding what you want to treat, isn't it? Pretty scary. Well, let's make it a little bit more clinically relative. So here's a similar study with respect to MRIs of the cervical spine. So what they did in this case is they did 479, 497, don't want to sound um, dyslexic there, 497 patients that were asymptomatic and did cervical MRIs on these patients. Well, the distribution was such that males tended to have a slightly greater, uh, females had a slightly greater uh, number of pathologies than males, no big deal there. 
17% of the males and 12% of the females in their 20s had pathologies. And remember, they're asymptomatic. But look at the other group. 86% male, 86% of the males and 89% of the females in the older age group, 60 years or older, had pathologies. But these are asymptomatic ones. And making it even worse was the one on the bottom. 7.6% of the patients, or subjects because they weren't really patients, over 50 were identified as having real severe evidence of, of basically cord compression, essentially a myelopathy, that would be indicative of the need for surgical decompression. Except they're all asymptomatic patients. Are we going to tell a patient, hey, your neck's not bothering you, but you have myelopathy. We're just going to do surgery on you. Does that sound nuts? Okay, but this says that, wait a second, the, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck have to stand up because you can't rely on those findings at all. Okay? So what I dislike about the session the most is like I got to sit through Dr. Cuevas' session this morning on, sacred, on SI joint pain. I'd love to have an hour to concentrate on a single pathology, but I have to talk about all these different things. Like last year, I sat through Dr. Argoff's presentation on myelopathy for an hour. So I'll tell you this story because I thought it was kind of funny. So sitting in the front of the room, and Dr. Argoff kept on insinuating as he's going through all of these strange myelopathic conditions, knowing that I see a lot of strange, complicated patients, and he's assuming that I know or have heard of all of these pathologies. He kept giving, I, mean, I appreciate the fact he was giving me credit for it. I hold Dr. Argoff in high regard. But at some point, I had to stand up in the middle of the lecture and say, wait, excuse me, time out. I have confidence in my ability to identify that this patient is demonstrating or may be demonstrating a myelopathy. However, you are mentioning the names of myelopathies that I have never heard in my life. So I would never be able to recognize that patient. I'd be able to recognize the fact that that patient has a myelopathy, but I would be calling you on the phone and saying, you need to tell me what kind of myelopathy this is. Remember, we're all, we all don't have all of the ability of doing everything. But on the neuropathic side of the equation, we have myelopathies. We have radiculopathies, and I'd like to, I should have put a subcategory there for radiculitis, inflammation of a nerve root. Plexopathies. Plex, the plexus is the sort of the spaghetti junction of nerves that gets innervation from the nerve roots before it goes to the extremities. So for the upper extremities, it's the brachial plexus. For the lower extremities is the lumbar and lumbosacral plexi, right? You can have a whole variety of peripheral entrapments. You can have a whole variety of peripheral neuropathies. What's the textbook peripheral neuropathy we talk about all the time? Diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain. There's a whole variety of neuromuscular disorders. There's another fine one. Can I recognize the fact that the patient has a neuromuscular disorder? Sure, but you can bet I'm sending them to Hopkins or something and saying, can you guys please tell me which one this is? Sometimes it comes back right, sometimes I disagree. What about arthropathies? Well, technically, that's a problem in the joint. We can have a problem in the neck. There are several joints in the neck. We got the shoulder, the elbow, the wrist, the digits. How about on the tendon side of the equation? Well, there's the sprain-strain idea, which is a tendinopathy. You can have a tendonitis or an enthesitis. What's the most, com the most common tendonitis-enthesitis conditions we see for the elbow? Tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, medial lateral epicondylitis. All right. How about muscular? You can have an irritation or an injury to the muscle itself, but you can also Technically, I guess a strain would be an injury to the muscle itself, but you can have a pathology. No one ever talks about vascular and autonomic causes on a regular basis, though, do they? But if you have that complex regional pain syndrome with color and temperature changes in the arm, don't you think there's something vascular going on there? It might have an autonomic component. But what also is the first thing, if you go outside in the cold and you're staying out for a long period of time because of vasoconstriction in your fingers, in your extremities, what happens to your fingers? They hurt. 
You ever come in and your finger, even if you put them under the cold water, you can't seem to stop the pain, right? So vascular conditions also. And then there's ones that we didn't even talk about. We can't begin to get through this in the case of a course of an hour, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you some case presentations and show you how we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, because I think that would be more valuable to us from the standpoint of how we apply this to our patient care. So here's our patient number one. And this is a recent, relatively recent patient. His complaints are very common. You're all going to nod when you hear this. Basically, neck pain, right-sided neck pain, suboccipital headaches that do not radiate frontally, He's got a history of numbness and tingling in the third through fifth digits that's more intermittent, varying in intensity, and it had been lessening in severity since the original injury. And the original injury, basically, was two years before I saw him. And this was like the last fall, I guess, this was. All right? So the MRI identified minimal changes, degenerative disc disease, and unfortunately, the interpretation never used the word minimal. It just said degenerative disc disease, C3 through C6, without evidence of canal or foraminal stenosis, all right? So when you look at the MRI, you know, you can tell that this is, I took the axial slice, you can see right here where the worst pathology they were talking about, which was, so if this is C2, C3, C4, C5, C6, you got that? And you can see there's a little bit of a disc protrusion there. There's actually a little bit of a disc protrusion in C3, C4 as well, and C4, C5, but it's also confined to within that posterior, posterior longitudinal ligament. One, do you think it's pushing on anything? No. Would you also agree this guy's canal is wide open? Of course. And what about the fact that the nerve roots are wide open too, right where that slice is, where that disc is the worst? It's like, of course there is. There's a great session on, I think it's on Saturday this year. Dr. Schottmeyer did it last year at Cape. It, was, it talked about what, you know, how we talk to patients and the value it is of what you get out of that conversation because words are important. So this patient now is told he's got disc herniations in his neck. So what do you think he thinks happened by his employer? Well, that fall, because it happened at work, caused my disc herniations. Anybody want to think, anybody want to really give a vote as to whether or not we think the disc pathologies were caused by his fall backwards when he fell on his head? It was a week before the MRI was taken. Is that really possible on that timeline? Probably not. So here's what the patient had for treatment over the two years. Multiple courses of physical therapy, which was largely heat, massage, exercises. He had a bunch of trigger points, largely into the trapezius muscle because of the shoulder pain, and you can actually palpate tenderness in the trapezius. Right? Um, he had epidural steroid injections. Where do you think they were focused to? Where the disc pathology was. That didn't do anything. Then they tried facet injections. Well, the facet injections he had were medial branch blocks. So there's two kinds of flavors for facet injections, intraarticular injections, and then a medial branch block, which blocks the medial recurrent branch of the nerve that innervates the facet joint. We're going to talk about why that's important in a second. But I will tell you that you're going to get a false positive when you do a medial branch block if you sedate the patient to do the injection, because when you ask the patient, did you feel better with the anesthetic, what do they say? Yeah, well, you have Valium. Oops, shouldn't say that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to use that, that specific name. So of course, so, but because you had, a, a, you had a great positive result from the medial branch block, what's the next on the occasion? They do a facet ablation. Of course, that doesn't seem to help either. So basically, now you have a patient who's frustrated, they're having problems sleeping, there's a whole cadre of other things that are involved. So all the treatment really was focused towards the trapezius muscle tenderness, right, and the center of the neck. Well, did we read the patient or did we read the imaging study? We read the imaging study. 
patient had a stack of records this thick. Do you know that I couldn't find exam findings in this record? I mean, other than a general status exam, there was nothing relative to the problem. So here's my clinical exam. Now, the clinical examination showed tenderness and pain when you palpate along the nuchal line. Well, the nuchal line at the base of the head is where the trapezius, semispinalis capitis, and splenius capitis, and splenius verticalis, and splenius capitis muscles attach. Well, just like you can have a tendonitis enthesitis at the elbow, which causes like you know lateral or medial epicondylitis, or can't you have like a tendonitis enthesitis at the base of your head too? Of course. What do you think that will cause? Headaches, the base of your head. Make sense? There's a variation to that theme as well. You guys ever hear of the greater occipital nerve? Well, if you irritate the greater occipital nerve at the base of your head, what do you think will happen with respect to the distribution of the patient's headaches? Well, then you're probably going to get it radiating frontally a little bit too. I love the fact that some of you just took your fingers and went like that. Because remember, if you've seen it before, it's easier to recognize. All right. So then I found hypertonicity, mild spasm of trapezius. Well, we kind of knew that. And the patient had a guarding. You can actually take a photograph of the patient, and I forgot to include it. You look at the patient's photo. When you shoot a picture of the patient, you can see their shoulders mildly elevated. They had pain to palpation, multifidus muscles over C3, C4. So I'm going to challenge everyone to do that. I've never done this before in a room. But take your fingers, fan them out like this, put them on the back of your neck, sort of, you can find the spinous process, and then you can roll over to the side so you're in the sulcus where the multifidus muscles are and also over the facet joints. Now, those, of, and you, if you notice, you can feel those things under your fingers pretty good, can't you? So I guarantee if there's any of you with neck pain that you're going to feel a nice tender nodule somewhere where you're palpating. And I've seen a couple of faces made, so I know that that's working. You have to feel things. So palpatory examination was the most important things we can do. So we had uh, some palpatory tenderness over C3, C4 facet joint um, on the right, which is multifidus muscles and a little bit of facet irritation. And there's actually ways of discerning whether it's facet and multifidus in both, and I can go through that if you'd like. We had pain over the right second costovertebral joint, right back here. Now, there's two costovertebral joints technically, isn't there? You have the head of the rib that articulates with the vertebral body, and then the, the rib also articulates with the lateral process, so that's a second joint. So sharp pain when you palpate over that joint, and then if you push anywhere along the course of the second rib, the patient's not feeling too well. So that tells you there's something not articulating properly with the rib. And then the rest of the examination was, for the most part, normal. Deep 10 reflexes were normal. Uh, motor and sensory exam were normal. Cervical range of motion I thought was relatively normal, but it changed after we treated him. Phelan's, Allen's, Edson's, Wright's, Snell's, cervical compression, dexcentric compression, cervical distraction were all normal. So what did we do? What did we do different that took two years of chronic pain and flipped it off like a light switch as far as clinical exam findings? Well, all of the treatment, remember, focused to the mid-cervical spine. But if you ask the patient, where do you hurt, the patient would point to two things, base of the head, headaches, and the top of the shoulder that caused a vertebral joint. Was any of the treatment focused towards that? No. But, you know, he was on opioids, adjuvant analgesics, several of them. Because what do we do for those patients? Well, you put them on something for headaches. We put them on something for chronic neuropathic pain. All right? So we revised the diagnosis. I was pretty comfortable that the right-sided headaches were caused by a tendonitis enthesitis associated with the splenius cervicalis, splenius capitis, and trapezius muscles. Make sense? Well, if it's inflamed, what do you put there? Have an anti-inflammatory medication. Okay, completely off-label, of course, but topical glycophenic. 
works as a great therapeutic as well as confirmatory diagnostic tool. Because when you put a topical NSAID on a place where it needs to be, 90% of it seems to get absorbed where it needs to be, which is great, so you get a higher outcome. And I'd be the first to admit, I probably shouldn't say this either. Here we have topical NSAIDs now that are commercially available. Back when I started, all these things had to be compounded. And one of my favorite ones to use, because it's relatively inexpensive today, it's over-the-counter in other places around the world, and the over-the-counter version in Germany is twice the strength as the prescription version here. So, you know, you can buy a lot of things over the Internet. <laughs> um, I don't recommend that to patients, but if I need to use that one, I kind of buy it and use it that way. Shouldn't admit to that, though, should I? So the patient comes back and says, yeah, my headaches are doing a lot better. Ooh, confirmatory diagnosis and therapeutic. We got an easy one there. This is where the multidisciplinary thing comes together because what I thought was going on with respect to that second rib was called, I call it a rib arthropathy. You can call it a subluxation. You can call it a first rib, but that's really the second one that was problematic, but it all comes in a complex. So if it's not articulating properly, what do you do? Manipulate it. Works like a charm. Manipulation is one of the oldest therapies known in Western civilization. It's kind of cool because it was actually described in the Edwin Smith Papyrus, with, which dates back 3,000 years B.C. Did you know that Hippocrates wrote a book called On the Articulations that was translated by Adams F. London in 1849? And in it, Hippocrates described all the conditions we see today for neck and back pain, largely back, and describe manipulation and traction tables and other things as the mechanism for treating it. So not much has changed in several thousand years. It's pretty cool, huh? So manipulation. Now, on a chronic patient like this, I will admit that all too, more often than not, we'll inject that. Because you can do a medial branch block or multifidus trigger points or something to make that manipulation a lot more tolerable and put a little bit of a steroid there that might help heal. However, this patient had so much steroid already my choice was not to deliver any more unless I really had to, so we went with manipulation without the injection. And we ultimately had to do an intraarticular injection at C3, C4. Why did we have to do that, and how did that play a role? Well, remember I said there was a little bit of mild irritation at the C3, C4 facet joint, didn't I? Because you can feel it with your fingers. Well, the spinal accessory nerve innervates the trapezius, but the trapezius also has a spinal component that's C3 and C4. So if the facet joint was getting inflamed, a little bit of the inflammation can leak out of the facet joint, cause a mild radiculitis, and that can cause the nerve to fire, and then the firing of the nerve results in hypertonicity of the muscle, which is the trapezius, which was then causing the tendonitis, enthesitis at the base of the head. And the trapezius will also go into spasm with respect to or become hypertonic in the case of a rib arthropathy because it wants to sort of keep the, the scapula off rubbing on the rib, so it's going to tend to want to lift it up. So basically, we threw a bunch of different things at the patient, but we targeted reading the patient and then treated the patient. But you see how the, the clinical presentation had multiple problems that kind of were intertwined? So then, what do you think happened? The patient comes in for a follow-up exam, and every single examination finding is gone. But yet, you see this all the time, too. So you ask the patient how they're doing, and the patient says, I don't feel any better. All right. Well, there's three things here that are problematic. One is they said, I don't feel any better, but then they also tell you, yeah, man, I was out. This is the first weekend that was great. I was able to go out and do yard work. Um, I went out and did this. I went out and did that. I did all these things. I didn't have to call out of work. 
oh, wait a second, that's a big functional change, isn't it? Because you were going home early every day and spending all weekend in bed. So that's great. So I take pictures of patients. So inside of the, if, aside from having to review the positive things that were negative now, we also show the patient the improvement in patient in pictures. But this is where pain week becomes extremely important because now we said, okay, we're going to start taking off your meds. And the patient says, no, you're not. That's what's making me better. It's like they haven't worked for two years. What makes you think they're working now? So what happens is we have to explain things like central sensitization and peripheral sensitization. This is why you got to come to the pain pathophys session in the morning because I can you know, go over how to talk to your patients about those things. So we basically say, look, you know, when you go to exercise, you know how you have to do cardio uh, uh, um, aerobic exercise to build up your cardiovascular system? Well, what happens if you stop? It, you don't go back to where you were before you exercised immediately. It takes time for the body to go back. Well, when you have pain for a long period of time, your body makes these neuroplastic changes, if you will, so that they behave differently. So it's like ingraining the fact that you have pain. So even though that you now remove the cause of the pain, because the body still expects to see it, guess what? You still perceive it. But you see how everything looks better? You see how everything you're telling me is doing better? So you just got to have patience. So now we're applying all these biopsychosocial coping skills that we learn here at Pain Week for the next six to eight weeks because it was harder to get the patient off their meds and sort of give them, act as a cheerleader for the rest of the time because treating the problem was like a cakewalk. You guys see this when it comes to patients when you put them on a medication as well because patients will take a medication for the first time and if you look at any clinical result for any medication that you see or any research, they only work a certain percentage of the time on a certain percentage of patients to a certain degree. Well, patients, when they see these television commercials, direct-to-consumer advertising, they think they expect a 100% success rate. So you give a patient a medication, their expectations are 100%, right? You give them a pill, you're only expecting a 30 or a 50% chance of maybe a third improvement. So the patient might have gotten that third improvement, but because they think that they were expecting 100, what do they tell you when they come back in? Didn't work. So you increase the dose, and now you increase the likelihood of a side effect, and you like steamrolled right over a clinically effective dose. So unfortunately, we think patients have an understanding and that they're telling us this information, but sometimes I feel like we have to beat it out of them, don't we? And you really do. The art of taking history, and I think there's a session on pain week that this year too, is sort of like one step short of waterboarding. <laughs> Patients don't voluntarily give you the information that you need to have. So when you look at an MRI, that MRI can become one heck of a red herring, can't it? When you think about it. So when you see an MRI, just because they identify the presence of a pathology, they don't tell you whether it's clinically relevant to your patient. And we'll talk about the fact tomorrow, like this patient probably had a little bit of a radiculitis at C3, C4, but MRIs can't identify radiculitis because they don't tell you inflammation of a nerve root. Well, if you give it, let's say this patient responded to the epidural the very first time they had it. If you repeated the MRI, would the disc herniation still have been there? Yeah, well, what's the, the, uh, the steroid in the epidural? Huh, that would be treating an inflammatory pathology, would it not? So you would have created, basically, an asymptomatic pathology. So it's really weird when you think about it. We do that all the time. We just don't think about it that way. So here's one of my favorite examples to use. Everybody remembers the brachial plexus, right? So the brachial plexus is C5, C6, C7, C8, and T1 nerve roots. Everybody got that? 
So if you look at dermatomes, for example, C5 dermatomes like you know, shoulder, lateral arm, C6 or what? First two digits, C7 is the middle digit, C8, last two digits, T1, medial aspect of the forearm into the arm. Everybody agree? All of the muscles for grip come from where? Ulnar nerve. The ulnar nerve comes around the elbow and innervates the wrist and finger flexors. So it comes off the ulnar nerve of the elbow. The ulnar nerve is basically made up of the C8 and T1 nerve roots. So all muscles for grip, like decreased grip strength, come from C8, T1. Um, so would you agree, at least, if you had numbness and tingling in the fourth and fifth digits and decreased grip strength, that we have at least a 50-50 shot of having a problem at C8 and T1? All of the intrinsic muscles of the hand are innervated by C8, T1, mostly ulnar. Median does... Um, Flexcropolicus brevis and the first dorsal interosseae, but the rest of them are all CAT1 by ulnar. So we can say that would probably include CAT1. Well, I'm happy to say I've been pre presenting stuff like this at Pain Week for years, and you guys have been making a big difference by bringing this back to your institutions, because here's a little bit of a problem. Many of the cervical MRIs stop at the body of C7, but where does C8 come out between C7 and T1? Where does T1 exit? between T1 and T2. So that's like telling a patient with neck and upper extremity pain that you might have a problem over here, but we're looking over here. So even if it could identify a pathology, you're kind of missing the boat to begin with. So about 50% of the MRIs these days still are missing, um, are, are including, I guess, C8. But less than a third are including T1. So if you ever order a cervical MRI, for the purposes of evaluating a patient with neck and upper and extremity pain, you have to write right on the order, please include axial images to include the C8 and T1 nerve roots. You'll never not forget to do that. That's a must. And just to show you how nothing's perfect, one, one case, the radiology department was arguing with me because they said, well, that's a thoracic study. And I said, well, look, my patient has a C8 radiculopathy. I want to know why. So. I don't care what you do, just do it. So they did a cervical study that stopped at the body of C7. They did a thoracic study that started at the body of T1, and the nerve root they didn't get from me was C8. <laughs> and you can't make this stuff up. So there's a clinical pearl that everyone will take home and remember. And we've had, I've gotten calls from radiology chairs all around the country who have acknowledged making change to clinical protocols, which I think is cool because of the information that you bring back. So every time I get one of those, I'm completely happy. So it's kind of like a little oversight that you can't believe has fallen through the cracks. Um, so let's talk about, we've all heard about facet joints and basically is like apophyseal joint, right? That's the joint in the back of the spine over here where you go from one vertebra to the next. There's a facet joint on each side. The joint itself has a little bit of a capsule in it. It's got a little disc, just like any other knee joint, if you will, and micro-sized, okay? So what happens is if that joint gets inflamed, you can get the leaking of inflammatory cytokines out that will inflame the nerve root that's coming out right adjacent to that facet joint. Does that make sense? So if you irritate the nerve as it exits, isn't it then going to be potentially causing a radiculitis? Yeah. So a lot of times we see things, people, about talking about referred pain with respect to facet pathologies. We've all heard that for years, right? Well, it turns out if you did segmental somatosensory evoked potentials on those patients, you would actually find out that they actually have low-level radiculitis. So there's actually a very good clinical example or demonstration of the manifestation of that pathology.
Okay? So the nerve has two things with respect to the muscle. It tells the muscle to contract, yes, but it also gives a resting tone signal to the muscle. So it tells the muscle to just like be there normally. Think about a spinal injury patient. What happens to the way that muscle atrophies? Well, you get more profound atrophy because you lose even that steady state control or just resting signal. So if that nerve starts firing because it's inflamed, what do you think happens to the muscle? Well, the muscle thinks, hey, the nerve is firing. That must mean I should get a little tighter. Well, that could be a muscle spasm. Maybe that's what we're picking out when we talk about trigger points because a lot of these patients we see with trigger points actually have an underlying radicular insult. Make sense? So not that I want to attack interventional pain because I use interventional pain procedures more than any other single treatment, you know, and then manipulation probably second. But let's look at a medial branch block for a second. If you do a medial branch block where you're blocking the nerve to the facet joint, does that really do anything for the inflammatory process? Not really. So that you might steamroll right over the problem because you didn't, because the nerve itself is inflamed. So there are some cases where we might prefer to do an intra-articular block versus a medial branch block because of the pathology or the pathophysiology is different, and we get this information from the clinical exam. So it's not that I, I don't like the discussion where people say, I don't believe in intra-articular blocks or I don't believe in medial branch blocks. It's, wait a second, what does your patient need? It's like we see people make the same discussions with respect to epidurals. It's like, I don't believe in transforaminals or I don't believe in in interlaminars. Well, great. Again, what does your patient need? So very patient-specific, highly patient-centered. That's how we make the decision of what to do and what patient when. So here's an interesting example, okay? So here we have a disc. I'll give you guys some love on this side of the room for a second. So here you have a disc osteophyte complex, right? At C2, 3, 4, C5, C6. Can everybody see that? So you have this dark desiccated disc osteophyte complex encroaching out to where the nerve root exits as well as onto the spinal cord. Can everybody see that over here? So here's our disc pathology right here. I took the slice right through it so you can see the, you know, the nice dark desiccated disc osteophyte complex pushing on the cord, causing flattening, and it's actually causing nerve root compression here on the left, which is actually the patient's right. So the question is, is this a symptomatic or an asymptomatic pathology? It's a trick question, because I didn't tell you what the patient examination findings were or the patient complaints. Okay, turns out in this case, this was a symptomatic pathology. So the patient actually had full-blown evidence of a radicular pathology, right down to the fact if something is irritated, compressing a nerve root, what do you think the patient's gonna behave like when they present to your office? Are they gonna be moving their head around too much? No, they're gonna be like antalgic. And to test the theory, and we do this in the workers' comp model all the time because, you know, patients are never honest either in workers' comp. So if you're talking to the patient, like if I'm talking to you, I might kind of stroll over here a little bit while I'm talking to the patient because inevitably, what does the patient do? Follow you. But if the patient can't move their head, what do they do? They're turning their whole body. Okay, I believe them. They don't know that I'm paying attention to them, but I'm paying attention to every single move they make. And that's extremely important. So this patient had motor weakness. They had sensory loss. They had all the arrows pointing to exactly the same thing. So what did we do? Surgically decompressed it. On the other hand, look at this patient. So here we have 
multiple levels of a disc pathology. So the worst degree of severity here is C5, C6, which doesn't look too dissimilar to that other patient, does it? Looks about the same. Can everybody see that? And if you look at the level below, it's a, a lot less severe, but it still looks like there's a little bit of a pathology. And the level above looks, oops, sorry, the level above looks even less severe. But you can see the, the flattening of the cord here for C5, C6 versus C4, C5, which doesn't look as bad. But you look at the cervical MRI and it looks really bad, doesn't it? So is this a surgical candidate or not? He was scheduled for surgery. But when you, this one happened, I was just talking to the patient. We didn't even do a full-blown exam. So this is the equivalent of like a telemedicine consult. But the patient's full animated. They don't have examination findings consistent with a cervical nerve root compression or a myelopathy. So it's like, whoa, wait a second. Maybe the surgery you have scheduled is a little bit too premature. So the surgeon wanted to prove his point, and he ordered what, one of my favorite studies, which is a 3D CT. So why do I like 3D CTs? Well, a CT scan looks like an MRI with different you know, images, axial, sagittals, and, and coronals. But what the, C, the 3D CT does is it takes that, all those images and uses computer rendering to assemble them into a 3D model, much like you do to evaluate the heart. Now, it's kind of cool from my perspective because this is like if you deal with the spine, this is like a fantasy because you get to rotate it around at different angles and look at it. It's like dissecting your patient, but they're still alive. But what makes it important is it also makes it easier to see a pathology. So if I put this out there, what would you think the problem was just by looking at the 3D CT? I can help you a little bit. Everything is a little bit relatively straight except for over here at C4. And look at the C3, C4 facet joint on the left, which is the patient's left on this study, and then the C4, C5 facet joint on the right on the bottom. Can everybody see how they look like they're chronically inflamed? a little bit of stuff poking out of it. But so when you talk to the patient and when you end up doing a cursory exam on the patient, I think the patient has a facet pathology. So what would you recommend? Surgery or facet injections just to see what happens? Facet injections. So we did intraarticular facet injections. Well, let's just say the patient's surgery was canceled and I saw him the other day and he's doing pretty good, still smiling. So, and I probably would have added in manipulation here too because you can tell that biomechanically that's not straight, and maybe that would help it reduce. So here's what the 3D CT gives you the ability of doing. You can rotate it around at different angles, so you can view it as if you're rotating the patient in front of you. It's really cool. The nice thing about it is, do we add radiation exposure to the patient by doing a 3D CT versus a regular CT? No, because it's just software rendering. And, you, and half the time, bless you, the insurance company will deny payment for it, but then the, the uh, the facility writes it off, so it becomes a free 3D CT. But you didn't hear me say that either. So when I started my, I got my start in clinical practice looking at two particular patients. It was post-op carpal tunnel syndrome patients and post-op back surgery patients. I was running all over the country lecturing and teaching and doing stuff on this. So, but my first research project was I wanted to validate the double crush hypothesis from Upton and McComas, which was promulgated in 1973. And we chose two different electrodiagnostic studies to do that. Nerve conduction studies, which you've all heard of, but not just any nerve conduction study. We would do inching studies. You can look at the nerve conduction of every single inch all the way across the arm. And we used evoked potentials because an evoked potential looks at the entire neural sensory pathway from your fingertips to the brain. So you're looking at the peripheral nerve, the 
uh, plexus, the nerve roots, the spinal segment, and even the way the brain processes that signal. So that was my, my goal. Because they said that of 115 patients that were diagnosed with carpal tunnel, when they took a step backwards, 70% of them had a cervical lesion causing proximal compression. Well, the best way to explain this is the garden hose theory. So the nerve itself is not a single hose, right? It's a bundle of nerve fibers. But each fiber has an axon which acts like a garden hose. So it's like a bundle of garden hose theories. What happens when you bend a hose in your backyard and water's coming out of it? It? Well, actually, it slows down. What do you get it to do to stop? Bend it a second time, right? You're thinking in the back of your mind now. Yeah, I do that all the time. So that was the idea. You bend it the first time, it slows. Bend it the second time, it stops. Well, here's something to pay attention to. Normal physiology is nerve functions at 100%. Everybody agree? When I bend my wrist at 90 degrees, what do you think happens to the median nerve at the wrist? It's kinked. Well, if you do a nerve conduction study with the nerve while the hand is bent, what do you think happens to the nerve conduction velocity? It slows. And your ability of that nerve to function really is reduced by about 70%. Up to 70%. Then these are almost arbitrary numbers, but it's close. So, but the body says, look, I only need 60% to work, right? So is that patient symptomatic? No. But if the patient has a more proximal lesion, like a mild cervical radiculopathy or a mild cervical radiculitis, or even a mild plexopathy, think thoracic outlet syndrome, right? So the whole nerve might be working at about 70 80%. Does the patient notice any symptoms? Bless you. No, but what happens when they bend the wrist normally now? Well, now it drops down to about 50%. Is that patient going to be symptomatic? Yes, but is the problem at the wrist or is the problem higher up the line? Higher up the line. Thus, the rash of all these patients that were getting surgical decompressions for carpal tunnel syndrome, and yet they were symptoma still symptomatic. We'd walk up, do something a little bit quick with respect to the patient, usually not at the wrist, and all of a sudden they're asymptomatic. And just to be funny about this, and again, I don't want to insult anybody, what does a cock-up splint do? Put the wrist into extension. What do you think extension does to the nerve? Stretches it. What do you think that'll do to the ability of propagating a neural impulse? Decrease it. And then what do you think they do when they put the brace on tight? Huh. That's like um, also decreasing blood and nerve flow to the hand. So the, the first-line therapy for treating the pathology can make the pathology worse. Great shot. So basically, Upton McComas' double cross hypothesis is like the whole nerve is normal. You can have a pathology that doesn't show up as being clinically visible, but it's there. But now it makes the nerve more susceptible to that second insult, which may not necessarily be clinically um, symptomatic, had the predisposing pathology been there. And, you know, I was in court one day, and I'm having an orthopedic surgeon argue the fact that this is something that's not valid. You know, it's just some far-fetched theory. Well, these are just some of the literature that came out around the time supporting it. There's hundreds of published in the next medical journal articles. Maybe he should read one or two. Needless to say, we got the patient better. He didn't. So, um, so when you do a clinical exam of your patient, even if the symptoms are in the hand, where should you be looking? What if they're in the elbow? What if they're in the shoulder? What if they're in the neck? You should be looking at the patient as if they're a whole, no matter what. I have a great clinical, I'm going to run out of time, so I'll, I'll tell you this story really quick. But it was a patient with a trigger finger. So I did a telemedicine consult on this patient. They had a trigger finger. And the surgeon said, well, we can do a decompression. We're going to release the pulley. So after the surgery, it was like half released. They still have a trigger finger. If you talk to the patient, you realize they also have 
pain in their forearm and pain in their neck. Well, what, what's the muscle responsible for that trigger finger? Where does that come from? Ulnar nerve, forearm. So I had the, the patient's doc give her a trigger point injection to the forearm into that muscle because you can palpate it and the finger relaxes post-surgically. And then I went back and said, look, it must be a C8 or T1 radiculopathy, radiculitis. What do you think? And they ultimately went back and did a transfrontal epidural or something in the area and then knocked that out too. But the patient had unnecessary surgery because we're looking at the patient with blinders on. How about rotator cuff tears? Remember rotator cuff tears? So now if a patient has shoulder pain, what do they do? They do an MRI of the shoulder. Do you know that no one ever validated for rotator cuff tears either? Think of the IRB for this proposal. They did a mass screening in one entire village evaluating every single patient from age 2 to 80, whether they had symptoms or not. That's pretty slick. We'll try and do that in this country. So when they did that, basically the prevalence of asymptomatic rotator cuff tears was more significant than the prevalence of symptomatic rotator cuff tears. And while the prevalence age-dependent was relatively low for ages 2 to 80, as you got older, the prevalence became higher, both for asymptomatic and symptomatic tears. So by the time you're in your 60s, you're two-thirds likely to have a rotator cuff tear whether you have symptoms or not. And out of the ones that have rotator cuff tears, only a third of them were symptomatic, two-thirds of them were asymptomatic. Well then, shouldn't you be doing a really good shoulder exam to determine whether or not that rotator cuff tear is of value before you do a rotator cuff surgery? Sorry if I insult anybody there, but no, that would mean we might not have to do surgery on that patient. But I have a boat payment to make. <laughs> so there was another study that came out which looked at the prevalence over age, and this one said, look, over 80, 50% of the time you're going to have a rotator cuff tear. 50 to 59, they said 13. I think the numbers are a little stronger than this, but their patient selection was very specific. It wasn't like they did everybody. One of the favorite things I like to do involves like looking at shoulder problems. So the textbook that I like, or Waldman's textbook of uncommon and common pain syndromes. So these are just the list of the common pain syndromes that are in Waldman's text alone. And since we're running out of time, I'm going to let you look at those yourself. And on the uncommon side here, you can look at a 10-minute video on the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons website that shows you how to do a shoulder exam so that you too can pick out these things in 10 minutes or less scary that you look in the record and there's no evidence that that exam was done even before surgery. So here's an interesting case. 21-year-old college student complaining of a gradual onset of right shoulder pain and he's pointing to right here. So primary care doc sends him to the orthopedic surgeon who does an MRI of the shoulder. Comes out negative. So he says, maybe it's coming from the neck. Let's do an MRI of the neck. That comes out negative. So they ordered an EMG. The EMG came out and said carpal tunnel syndrome. It gets funny. So the EMG that was done was a cookie cutter study. And those of you who are EMGers know that you're supposed to evaluate the patient and tailor the study to the patient first. That's not what was done here. So the patient comes in basically with a diagnosis of carpal tunnel wearing a cockup splint. I ask him about his shoulder pain, he tells me. So then I say, well, tell me about the wrist pain, and the hand pain, finger pain, anything. He says, well, I have carpal tunnel syndrome. And I got that. What's bothering you? I have carpal tunnel syndrome. There's an educational moment here. So I open up Waldman's textbook for what I think is the problem which is basically suprascapular nerve entrapment. And there's a picture of a little, of a kid with a backpack on there, by the way, too. So I said, but, so I show him the picture for carpal tunnel syndrome first. So he reads it and says, I don't have that. I said, that's the point I'm trying to make. He says, well, then how come I have to wear this splint? And how come I had to go for physical therapy? Well, I didn't order it, of course. But, so what I did is, I figured we had a good educational moment here. Now I flipped to the page for supraspinatus nerve entrapment and said, here's what I think you got. 
there are a couple of variations to the theme, so here's what I'm going to do to diagnose that for you. We did needle EMG studies of the infra and supraspinatus muscles. I did evoke potentials of the infra and supraspinatus branches of the suprascapular nerve, so I can come back and say that you had an entrapment of the proximal branch of the suprascapular nerve that goes to the supraspinatus muscle. So I tailored the study to the patient, confirmed my diagnosis, sent them back to his primary care doc with an X on the spot, the photocopy of the page from Waldman's text, and said, inject here, and said, stop using a backpack. I guess we could have done another carpal tunnel decompression. So preganglionic sensory radiculopathies were not detectable by EMGs because those are motor pathways. And the peripheral segment on a preganglionic nerve, because the peripheral segment's still intact, guess what? The resting potential's still there, so the, the study would be negative anyway, even if it had been done right. But we looked at a different set of muscles, and that's how we found it, because I didn't do cookie-cutter pathology or a cookie-cutter study. I tailored the study to the patient. Make sense? So last case I want to run through really quick, and then we'll call it a day because I'm going to run a couple minutes over. Here's a 47-year-old male who's involved in a car accident. So what he's got now is sharp, sharp, sharp stabbing pain, like knife-like, with the slightest little movement of his neck. And he's stuck in a position like this. And the pain would go all the way out to, the, to his hand. This is an iatrogenic problem. You're supposed to ask, OK, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because a physician was driving the car. He was a car salesman. A physician was driving the car at the time of impact caused in the accident, and that's why it was iatrogenic. So this was his MRI taken the same day of the injury. And you can see they did, if you look at the axial images, they did get through the body of C, top of the body here of, C, of T1. So they got the C8 neural root, but they didn't get T1. And I put the slices there for you to see. But did the mild degenerative changes that are here, did that happen as a result of the accident? No. no. They tried to do an EMG on the patient. He couldn't tolerate it, because this is six months down the road with an acute pain. So remember, think central sensitization. Everything is like ready to spill over. The slightest little thing pushes them over. They can't tolerate. So the neurologist calls me up and says, have I got a patient for you? So he asked if I would do an invoke potential because we cheat and we'll use anesthetic, sodium channel blocker underneath the stimulating electrode so I can get away with stimulating the patient at a higher level without them feeling it. We found a T1 radiculitis. Well, since they didn't get the axial image, I wanted to see what was causing that T1 because I've seen this before. Vertebral body or pedicle fractures will cause that. That would account for the patient not wanting to move, and that also accounts for the inflammation of the nerve root. So I wanted a CT scan. The insurance carrier said no, but we'll do a bone scan. So think about this. So you do a bone scan, and bone scans basically give the patient a radioactive tag. The body absorbs a radioactive tag. Where it absorbs less, you get kind of an infarct. Where it absorbs more, you get an increased density. So they put the patient on the imaging table, but his head's stuck like this, right? So he can't lie back, so they put pillows under his neck and shoulder. Well, if you lift the patient off the imaging, study, what is, imaging table, what does it do to the ability of the study to evaluate the patient? So the study comes back inconclusive for the cervical spine because his head was not on the imager, but he's got um, arthritis in the right ankle. And I kid you not, that's what the interpretation said. So it took six months for his fracture to heal because he had a T1 vertebral body fracture causing a T1 radiculitis. So look, the take-home message is the clinical relevance of any of these diagnostic tests is really never been validated and they're never 100%. We really need to read the patient, not the imaging study. Objective clinical examination findings should never be dismissed just because you have a negative test. These patients aren't necessarily malingering. 
And you know, once they've had a problem for a long period of time, it's highly likely that one pain generator gets kind of lumped on top of another. So then you have to start teasing them apart and accounting for what problems are going to respond to what treatment, because if you don't treat them all at the same time, you're also going to steam over the problem. So if I had to say one last thing, look at the patient as a whole, not a body part, and examine your patients. Because without that, we're just throwing darts at it, hoping for the best. So thank you for your time. I hope I gave you some information that was helpful. Um, oh, thank you. We get to run through pain pathophys made simple if you'd like to tomorrow. So we're going to talk about how pain gets from your fingertips to your brain. And we'll even spend an hour in the afternoon on imaging studies if you want to learn more about how to look at imaging studies and maybe get some more information out. And then if you really want to have fun, we're going to do two hours of differential diagnosis of back pain on Friday. So hope to see you guys again, and thank you very much for coming to Pain Weekend for giving me your time.